I'm just going to come right out and say it. I'm strange. <laughs> You're not supposed to agree with that, by the way. Though I'm, some of you, I'm sure some of you are thinking, I'm sure glad he finally had the guts to admit it out loud. <laughs> Here's the truth. Anyone who spends a considerable amount of time with me after a while finds out that I'm weird, particularly when it comes to food. I'm the guy who goes to a burger joint, you know the kind, the one with all the unique toppings and flavors, and I order a plain burger with ketchup only. Or we take the youth to one of those milkshake, milkshake establishments, you know the kind I'm talking about, with a million different flavors, and I order my tried and true vanilla. I like what I like. There's really no sense in messing up a good thing, or at least I thought. The youth who are here or are watching online this morning will not find this surprising, but one item that isn't on my food palette is anything that's green. <laughs> I really want to like salad, but I don't. I want to like green vegetables, but I don't like them either. And perhaps it's not as crazy as it seems when you consider that I grew up quite literally next to a potato field in rural Alabama. I'm the textbook definition of a meat and potatoes guy. And to give you an example of the extremes that I used to previously take to avoid anything green, we must go all the way back to my childhood with my family at a Red Lobster. Now, I know in Florida, it's sacrilegious to eat at Red Lobster when you have your choice of fresh seafood nearby. But where I'm from, eating at a Red Lobster was a treat. My family and I, we would head down to Gadsden, Alabama ever so often. And when we did, we never failed to stop by the Red Lobster there on the edge of town. And as you might expect of the Red Lobster, they would always bring out those Cheddar Bay biscuits as an appetizer. I can see some of your mouths water, watering right now. I promise you the sermon's going to be short. We'll get you out on time so you can head over to the Red Lobster. <laughs> but for the longest time, I wouldn't eat them. And do you know why? Because on those Cheddar Bay biscuits are dried parsley leaves. <laughs> just, just tiny, microscopic almost, little green things there sitting on the biscuits. For most people, they're okay, but for me, they were the ultimate deterrent. It took me years to finally work up the nerve to finally chomp into one of those biscuits, but when I did, it was like my life had changed. <laughs> not only did the dried parsley leaves not kill me, they actually made the biscuits better. Who would have thought, right? Herein lies the problem with perception and reality. For, I, for me, I had perceived that those biscuits would be disgusting because they were garnished with something green, yet reality was far better than anything I could have originally imagined. Because sometimes the best gifts are the ones that we're not so sure about at first. Sometimes it's the unexpected gifts that bring the greatest joy. I wonder this morning if John the Baptist felt the same way. 
You might recall from our gospel passage last Sunday, which was from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In it, John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's preaching a message, an urgent message of repentance. For John the Baptist, the time had come for women and men of all walks of life to embrace an alternative way of knowing, being, and doing in the world, one that contrasted to the empirical mindset of his day. John the Baptist, as we know, not only preached his message, he embodied it. Matthew tells us that he wore clothing made of camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist was quite literally a radical, and he even invited those who listened to him to be radical with him because as Matthew tells us, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For John the Baptist, now was the time to repent. Now was the time to prepare for the impending judgment of the one who was to follow him. Because in John's words, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But there is one more powerful than I that is coming after me. And I am not worthy to carry his sandals, John says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist understood his role. John was content to stay in his lane and allow the purposes of God to play out in God's timing. But in the meantime, he invited his followers to come and to begin preparing, to begin embracing this alternative reality that they were longing for, to be prepared and not caught off guard when the Messiah arrived. For as John concludes his message, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. The way that John the Baptist, the forerunner, carries out his mission of preparing the way for the coming Messiah is one that inspires and invites John led and preached with conviction and power. He was firm in his belief that the one who followed him would put the world to rights and would cast out the unrighteous from his midst. A message such as John's brought great hope to his followers, those who longed for that alternative reality from the one that they were enduring at that time. And yet, as we arrive at the passage that Marie read for us just a moment ago, we find the exact opposite of hope and joy. John is locked up in prison for preaching what Walter Brueggemann calls an emancipating word, a word that threatened Herod and the rest of the ruling class. It is implied that during John's stay, he received words from his own disciples about Jesus and the work that he was doing. And while John had certainly hoped that Jesus was the chosen one, we begin to see some of those doubts creep into his mind. He sends word via his disciples with a simple question. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? It's a fair question considering John's circumstances. If Jesus is the Messiah, then why is his predecessor, his forerunner, in prison. But this isn't just a question about John's current circumstances. 
It's a deeper question about Jesus' identity. As we recall from Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist and many others believed that this Messiah that they were waiting for was coming and he was going to come and clean house. Messianic expectations were high. And when Jesus is elevated to that Messiah status, what follows are the hopes and the dreams of an oppressed and occupied people. People who were longing for rescue and redemption. And while Jesus has certainly made a nice early impression, he still leaves a lot to be desired. After all, the chosen one was expected to come in and to cast the mighty down from their thrones and to send the rich away empty while occupying the throne and ruling benevolently in a way that pleased God. The hopes and dreams of Israel are bound up in this Messiah figure. And up to this point, Jesus is underwhelming for those who are longing for regime change. I got to think this morning, though, that some of you may be sitting out there in your pew going, I'm really glad that John asked the question. After all, John's question is in many ways our question, isn't it? Seasoned Christians as well as cautious skeptics are often wondering the same thing. Is Jesus the real deal? Or is this thing all just a big sham? Look around you. The rich and the powerful still pull the levers of influence. The poor and innocent still suffer immensely. Wars rage on while education funds dry up. Human beings are commodified and commercialized for profit. Racism and anti-Semitism are regaining strength in our political dialogue. The mental health of our children is deteriorating at an alarming rate because they're forced to grow up faster than ever before. I could go on and on with examples of suffering and pain and injustice that make us cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 13 who says, How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? It's human nature to ask questions. And we shouldn't be timid in crying out to God with our questions and with our doubts. John the Baptist certainly was not shy, and neither should we be. Yet just as John and his disciples learn, we too must be ready to have our assumptions challenged. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington suggests that what John seems not yet to have understood is that Jesus did not come to meet our expectations of what a Messiah should be and do. Jesus came to meet our needs. Jesus explains to John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. In response to John's question, Jesus proclaims that something unprecedented is happening in their midst. Even the blind receive their sight, a miracle that does not occur in the Old Testament. 
Jesus is doing something new, something unexpected. To quote Isaiah, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Jesus comes neither as a doomsday preacher ready to judge the quick and the dead, nor as a warrior king ready to storm the gates of Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government. Jesus does not come to fulfill some preconceived notion about what a Messiah should do and be. Rather, Jesus comes to fulfill the mission of bringing the light of God's love to earth as it is in heaven. To those who followed John the Baptist and longed for that alternative kingdom, Jesus came pronouncing that the light of that alternative kingdom has arrived in him. For the people who have sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned, Jesus says. The light of God's kingdom is revealed through the signs and the wonders of Jesus' ministry and he tells, John, tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. For the gift that you've been waiting for has arrived. When Courtney and I were engaged, we had a wedding regist- registry set up at various places. We had the usual items on the list to help us get our lives started. But one gift that we wanted almost more than the others was our bed sheets. And we wanted these sheets in a particular color, a particular thread count, and so on. And we were excited about those specific sheets. Well, we went to one of our showers, and lo and behold, we got our sheets. Only they weren't the right ones. (laughs) Instead, we found out that my mother, of all people, decided that she was going to go out and buy her own. They weren't the right color. They weren't the ones we requested. And of course, we put on our face, told her thank you, told everyone else gathered thank you. But we went home a little disappointed, of course, that we didn't get the sheets we'd imagined. The part I didn't tell you was that these sheets were 700 thread count Egyptian cotton sheets. It's pretty nice. And later, after we got over that sort of initial disappointment, we put those sheets on our bed. And let me tell you, They were the best sheets I've ever slept in. (laughs) We couldn't believe how soft and comfortable these things were. And we also couldn't believe how foolish we'd been to underestimate what a great gift these sheets were, despite not living up to our initial expectations. What was once a letdown became for us one of our favorite gifts. Now, be it far from me this morning to compare Jesus to bedsheets. But I do believe Jesus is the beautiful letdown. Not just for John, but even for us. It is in our nature to hold high expectations of those people and the things that we believe most deeply in. We pin our hopes and dreams on it, hoping what we desire will come to fruition if we just pray hard enough, if we just give generously enough, if we just live faithfully enough. But isn't it like Jesus to shatter our expectations of him? 
Jesus is indeed the beautiful letdown because the minute that we think we've got Jesus corralled, the minute that we think Jesus has figured out for us, he goes off and surprises us again. Jesus is constantly turning over the tables of our feeble and narrow-minded ideas about what God is up to in the world. And simultaneously, God, or Jesus rather, is inviting us to come and experience the depth and the mystery of God's radical love that is not and never will be contained by human reason. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' invitation to his followers is simple. Come and see, Jesus says. Jesus isn't going to spell this thing out for us. We must decide to come and experience it for ourselves. In the middle of our passage, Jesus praises the character and faithfulness of John the Baptist saying, yes, a prophet, but even more than a prophet. Among those who are born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. But it's the sentence immediately following that one that I want to point your attention to this morning. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than he, Jesus says. The least in the kingdom of heaven, the least in the kingdom are those who choose to follow the one that John says he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. From the beginning, God's plan was not to fix everything on our behalf, but rather to involve us in the process of establishing a new heaven and a new earth where in the words of Revelation, God will be with us. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying will be no more for the first things have passed away. Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, writes this. He says, why does God let evil and pain so flagrantly exist, even thrive on this planet? He goes on to say that God holds back for our sakes. Recreation involves us. We are, in fact, at the center of God's plan because the motive behind all human history is to develop us, not God. Our very existence announces to the powers in the universe that restoration is underway. And then he ends it with this. Every act of faith by every one of the people of God is like the tolling of a bell. Every time we serve one another, Every time we advocate for the oppressed, every time that we choose peace over division, every time that we fill a Yukon Christmas bag so that someone doesn't go hungry during Christmas, every time that we bring lightly used or new toys so that children wake up and have a gift on Christmas morning, every single time that we do something for someone else, the bell of God's love tolls. For these, among many others, are signs of God's advent in the world, evidence of God's light shining amidst the darkness. And as the Gospel of John reminds us, the light shines in the darkness, 
but the darkness does not overcome it. Friends, wherever you may be this Advent season, do not let your hearts be troubled. Yes, there is terror and there is violence. Yes, there is pain and suffering. Yes, there is darkness and there is despair. But hear these words and remember these words from Frederick Buechner. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For our God is with us. And with us, our God is making all things new. Thanks be to God. Amen.